There is the belief that every person has a guardian angel. I don't find that in scripture. We do find that there are guardian angels, but the idea of having your own individual guardian angel, I think uh, goes well beyond what's written. And especially when you find that some leading Roman Catholic philosophers speculate, therefore, that you can calculate how many angels there are by just adding up the human population. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Graham Cole. Graham serves as Dean and Professor of Biblical and Systematic Theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. An ordained Anglican minister, he was formerly the principal of Ridley College and is the author or editor of a number of books, including Against the Darkness, The Doctrine of Angels, Satan, and Demons. Today, Graham and I discuss what the Bible really teaches us about angels. We talk about the different kinds of angels mentioned in Scripture, whether or not every person has a guardian angel, the nature of demon possession today, and what we know about the when, why, and how of Satan's fall. Let's get started. Graham, thank you so much for joining us today on the Crossway Podcast. It's my pleasure to be with you. So I want to start at uh, a passage that I think is often very perplexing and fascinating, really, though, to to many Christians. Uh, It's a passage in Hebrews 13, and and just to set the stage a little bit, the author of Hebrews is emphasizing uh, how how we are to live as Christians in front of a watching world, and he says in verse 2, quote, "...do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers." For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And I think uh, probably many Christians have read that, maybe in their own quiet time or devotions or a Bible reading plan, and maybe been a little bit surprised and kind of uh, maybe not recognized that verse before. Does that mean that we might be passing strangers on the street every day who are actually angels? Is that how we should take that verse? It's a good question, Matt, but uh, I think that's to take the verse too far. Uh, When we only have one reference to something in Scripture, uh, it can lead to quite a lot of speculation about what its full meaning is. And that's fine, as long as we admit that that's what we're doing. I wonder if the writer of the Hebrews has in mind what happened to uh, Abraham when the three men turned up. And it turned out that uh, t- the two of them were angels, and one of them was the Lord himself, as far as I understand the passage. But he wasn't aware of that immediately. So I think he might have that biblical passage in mind as he writes that. Um, but it's talking about welcoming someone to your, to your door, as it were, rather than just passing anyone in the street. But we also learned from Hebrews, Matt, that angels are ministering spirits. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility of God sending his messengers in that way. But whether we recognize them or not, well, that would need a a special grace of God's spirit, I think, for us to be able to do that. Is it safe to assume that angels are around us, close to us, even watching us all the time? I think it's safe to assume that they're actively involved in the story of salvation, indeed our salvation. But as to exactly what they're doing, uh, unless you're a prophet uh, like uh, an Elisha who can 
uh, enable his uh, servant to see what otherwise the servant could see, how they were surrounded by the angelic hosts. Um, we just don't uh, really have the tools to be able to recognize exactly what they're doing. And I think one reason why uh, the Lord doesn't reveal what those tools are is that, look, Scripture's not written to angels. It's written to us. So when angels make their appearance in the Scriptures, it's as uh, minor players on the stage because the real action is between God and the images he hopes to restore and will restore, namely the sons and daughters of Adam. Yeah, so in light of that, do you think it's, it, it feels like many Christians in the West, at least today, um, America is a great example of this, maybe don't think a lot about angels and demons in general. It's just, it's just kind of a, we might not deny that they exist, but they don't really factor much into how we think about not just our daily lives, but even our spiritual lives, uh, relationships with God and with others. Um, is that is that a good approach to this topic, or do you think we've gone too far in underemphasizing the role that angels play in our lives? It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis wrote in his famous uh, The Screw Tape Letters, that he was speaking about demons, but it also applies to uh, angels, and that is uh, two errors. You can be either over-interested in them, and that can happen with some Christian people, or you can be under-interested in them. And I think in many sections of the evangelical world in the West, uh, we are under-interested, and so we have a kind of blind spot. Uh, we think that the drama that we're caught up in is just a drama between God and ourselves, between belief and unbelief at the human level, without recognizing the richness of the biblical worldview, that there's another level of uh, intelligent reality, creaturely reality, some of which is in uh, obedience to God as I speak, some of which is in rebellion against God as I speak. And I think that's a blind spot. And uh, we need to be uh, made aware of it in the churches. Are there different kinds of angels? Indeed there are. And again, this is an area where people have gone well beyond the Scripture. Uh, we read in Scripture of uh, cherubim, and we read of seraphim, we read of living creatures who may or may not be seraphim and cherubim, and we read of archangels like Michael and angels who are obviously under an archangel. But in the early church period, there was someone called uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, um, sometimes called Pseudodenus, and he was very speculative, and he came up with nine categories of angel arranged in groups of three to mirror the trinity uh, going from seraphim down to ordinary angels well that was very very interesting stuff but uh, highly imaginative and again if you believe that the scriptures are the norm of norms the thing we go to uh, to exercise quality control on our theological beliefs and values then you think to yourself that seems to be a textless doctrine. Uh, what we do know, though, is that there's at least archangels, and that implies that there are angels under them. But as for the rest, I think it's just highly speculative. And what about the seraphim and cherubim? There's a few passages in Scripture that seem to speak to them, and they're often pictured as these... Um, you know, different kind of combinations of animals with eyes all over their bodies and in the throne room of God. What else do we know about 
the role that they play and um, maybe their unique position uh, in heaven? I think we can say, and scholars help us here, that seraphim, those bright uh, shining ones, uh, are really throne angels that are in the immediate presence of God from which they can come to earth, as in the experience of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, where it was those uh, seraphim who brought uh, the coals to his lips so he could be purified. Uh, We do know something about cherubim, and when we think about cherubim, we particularly think of the earthly, because if you read uh, Genesis 3, we find that after the defection from God of Adam and Eve, the cherubim are there to guard any kind of re-entry into the paradise garden of God from Adam and Eve. So we can say that they're associated uh, with guarding. We don't know of uh, four living creatures, uh, the living creatures who live constantly in the presence of God and praise him around his throne in Revelation chapters, uh, chapter 4, uh, whether they're seraphim or not. Uh, that's a, a, another speculative question. So we do know some things about some of the angels like that. We do know that uh, Michael leads the armies of God, as in Revelation chapter 12. And actually, in Revelation chapter 12, he takes on Satan, that great dragon, and Satan's entourage of fallen angels and uh, defeats them. So we do know that uh, another angel like Gabriel, who may be an archangel too, traditionally Gabriel is seen in those terms. He becomes the named messenger, angelic messenger, uh, to Mary, who's about to, who's to concede Jesus. So these are some of the things uh, we indeed know. So let's let's turn then to Satan and his demons. What do we know about Satan's origins and his fall? Uh, and you know, in particular, when did it happen? And do we know, you know, kind of any of the details surrounding that? I think we know some things for sure. We know that Scripture identifies the serpent of Genesis 3 with Satan. Uh, The book of Revelation, Revelation 20, does just that. Uh, We know that the serpent comes from the outside, from the world of wildness. And we know that uh, the serpent comes uh, to be deceptive and to trick uh, Eve, in the first instance, into... Uh, disobeying God. And as the great deceiver, the serpent questions the character of God, the motives of God, the goodness of God. Uh, we, we know from Genesis 3 and the subsequent uh, depiction of Satan, the great adversary, uh, that's what the name can mean, that the great adversary is a spoiler, out to spoil relationships Uh, Out to spoil our relationship to God, our relationship to one another, we see that consistently in the biblical testimony from Genesis 3 on. As for the origins, given what I've said, then I would argue that there's a fall before the fall of humanity. And that is there's a rebellion before the human rebellion. But you can't really give a timeline for that except to say that It's before, in some sense, I believe, what happens in Genesis chapter 3. As for why Satan did that, um, the traditional answer is uh, pride. And in great Old Testament passages like Isaiah 28 and 
uh, Isaiah 14 rather than, and Ezekiel uh, 28, we may see uh, something of that in talking about earthly rulers uh, against the people of God and their arrogance. It seems that the language is so extravagant that it's not hard as the church has seen the picture of uh, an even greater malevolence behind them, uh, which is uh, Satan. Um, so I think that traditional answer about pride is uh, probably correct, especially when uh, Paul warns about falling into the condemnation of the devil, which seems again to be about uh, pride on human beings' uh, part. And there may be another clue to this, Matt. It's interesting when you look at Matthew 4 and those temptations, the last temptation of Satan to Jesus is that, that Jesus fall down and worship him, to give him the, the deference that belongs to God alone. And I wonder if that's not a clue as to what Satan is really on about. Mm. Satan wants to be God. Mm. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's such a it's such an interesting topic. And I, I, to your point about how we have to kind of thread this needle of of not underemphasizing the role that they play and underemphasizing what we know Scripture says about angels and demons and Satan, uh, but also not overemphasizing that. As, as you think about the uh, the question of angels and the role that they play in our lives today, and and then Satan and demons and the role that they play today, and even their history. Uh, are there things that that stand out to you as examples of maybe historical tradition or um, kind of just cultural ideas that have seeped in that a lot of Christians might think about these topics that aren't necessarily supported in Scripture? Does anything come to mind along those lines? Look, a few things do, Matt. Uh, there is the belief that every person has a guardian angel. I don't find that in Scripture. I think that's a textless doctrine. We do find that there are guardian angels and that angels, plural, can guard God's people. But the idea of having your own individual uh, guardian angel, especially uh, as in the Roman Catholic tradition, I think uh, goes well beyond what's written, and especially when you find that some uh, leading Roman Catholic philosophers uh, speculate, therefore, that you can calculate how many angels there are on dealing with uh, earthly creatures like us at any one time by just adding up the human population. Well, where on earth does that come from? Uh, the idea that angels look like uh, cute little babies with wings, um, that's, uh, that's a bit hard to find in the book of Revelation or anywhere else. Uh, there are so many ideas, the idea that the, the devil has uh, horns and a pitchfork. Um, so some of this is just the religious imagination, I think, uh, running riot. And that's where over-interest uh, can take can take a person. And we just need to be disciplined by what uh, God makes known and be careful in speculating about what he has not made known. So I think a lot of um, non-Protestant traditions, and Roman Catholicism is a good example of this, might have some kind of concept in place related to praying to angels, bringing our prayers to them uh, with the thought that they will then you know, communicate those prayers on to God. Is there any biblical support for that idea or um, 
Yeah, what, 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 would the, what would the scriptures teach us on that idea? I think the scriptures would teach us to stay away from it <laughs> because there's one mediator between God and ourselves, according to Paul, as he writes to Timothy, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one great high priest to whom we go with our prayer requests, according to the book of Hebrews. I think to put angels between God and ourselves, or the saints, or even the Virgin Mary, as in the Catholic tradition, is the problem we see at Colossae, where Paul warns uh, the Colossians about the worship of angels. They, they seem to have this view that between God and ourselves were layers of creatures, and one layer of creature were angels. And Paul was not happy with that idea, and neither should we be. Because I think one of the ways we can spoil the gospel, Matt, is by interposition. We put something between Christ and ourselves, whether it's a, a saint or an angel. And what do we? What does the Bible teach about what angels are made out of? I, I think we we have this vague idea that they're they're spirit, but what do we mean by spirit when we say that? Um, Isaiah says that um, um, as for the Egyptians, uh, they are men and not spirits. Their horses are but flesh. And whether it's in Isaiah or whether it's in the New Testament writings, uh, there seems to be a contrast between spirit existence and fleshly existence. So when I read in Hebrews chapter 1 that angels are ministering spirits, I would argue that they are immaterial beings. Uh, They're not made up of atoms and molecules unlike our bodies are made up of atoms and uh, molecules. And so uh, as a consequence of that, um, they are like God in that respect, because we know that it is possible to exist without uh, a, a body, a physical body. Otherwise, we'd have problems with our very doctrine of God. And so it's no surprise then that God has made a creature that is a spirit creature just like he's made uh, creatures that are purely material, like uh, gold or silver. The amazing thing is that human beings, as it were, participate in both by the nature of, uh, by having the kind of natures that we have, that we are this, uh, what one philosopher puts it, uh, we are a dualism, in reality, but as far as we can see, we're just a unity, and it's a it's a dualism of uh, body and spirit. And I think that's what the biblical testimony tells us about ourselves. So angels are on the spirit side of that, not on the body side. Yeah, that's fascinating, and I, uh, it makes me wonder then, uh, and kind of going back to the question of the origin of the angels, um, is it clear that angels were created as part of the the creation account that we read of in the first chapters of Genesis, you know, I think when we think about that that Genesis one creation account, um, we often attach that or connect it directly to the physical world, the physical universe that we inhabit. That seems to be what it talks about specifically, and it doesn't mention angels uh, in in there at all. Is it right to see angels as also created in that, or is it possible that they would have existed? before uh, the events recorded in Genesis 1 and 2? 
I think Augustine may have been on onto something when he argued that when it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, by creating the heavens, uh, God was not just creating you know heavenly bodies like stars and the sun and the moon, but also the angelic realm. Hmm. So if he's right, then right from the start uh, we have some clue as to uh, the creation of angels. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so what about demon possession? I, I mean, we look in the, the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, and there is there are lots of examples of um, these evil angels, fallen angels, uh, possessing people, exercising just such profound influence over their physical bodies and their attitudes and actions and speech. Is that something that still happens today, in your opinion? And if so, uh, how should we understand that uh, and distinguish that from other things like perhaps mental illness or other types of uh, physical maladies that we often suffer from? I think the traditional way of talking about uh, this phenomenon that we have in the New Testament, where Jesus exorcises uh, spirits from some poor person like that demoniac in Mark chapter 5 that lived amongst the tombs who had a legion, a multitude of demonic presences um, oppressing him. I think that I would rather say instead of someone is demon-possessed, they're demon-inhabited because Jesus, uh, when he exercises a demon, says, you know, come out, and we read the spirit or spirits leave that person. Another occasion, Jesus compared a person to a house, and if you clean it, you might get rid of a demon, but if you're not careful, seven more will come back. All that is very spatial, suggesting that uh, a human being sadly can be inhabited by a demon. Uh, That also shows us, too, a very important thing, that... um, the demonic and for Satan himself, they're not omnipresent. Um, they can be in this locale or that locale, but they don't have the attributes of God, one of which is um, omnipresence. Uh, does it happen today? Yes, I believe it does happen today. Uh, I've actually uh, read accounts of it, heard uh, exorcisms on tape, uh, watched it, um, on tele- watched them on television, uh, talked to witnesses who have first-hand experience. But it has tended to be in the majority world rather than this uh, Western world. And, and, and here's an idea, and I'm not saying it's only the case in the West, but as I read scripture, the devil has a couple of uh, main guises. He can be the roaring lion of uh, 1 Peter 5, who is clearly out to get get God's people by way of persecution. And I think the roaring lion shows itself in in demon inhabitation as the entourage of uh, the devil um, gets to work. But also the, the devil and his agents can work as angels of light as in 2 Corinthians 11. And that's a a nefarious, uh, an evil work that's done chiefly through false teaching that deconstructs the gospel. 
And I think in the West, that's where we're really seeing the devil and the demonic at work. That's not to say that there can't be demonic inhabitation in America or other countries in the West. But I think in the main, that's how the devil is operating. Hmm. That's fascinating. And it makes me wonder, too, a lot of times when we think about spiritual warfare, it has a component that is kind of between humans and evil spirits. But but also sometimes we have this idea, this vague notion that angels and demons are also at war or fighting with each other. Is there any biblical warrant to that idea? And if so, what what might that look like? Uh, there is biblical warrant. Uh, Revelation 12 talks about war in heaven. And as I alluded to earlier, Michael and his angels fighting and defeating the devil and uh, his angels. Um, would that suggest that the devil was an archangel originally or some lesser angel? But what we do know is that Scripture testifies to the victory of Michael at that point. But again, and this is a really important point, Matt, since the Bible, the revelation of God is addressed to human beings um, and not to angels, there is just a myriad of questions we'd love to know the answer to, but we don't have any revelation to go on. But we do know at least this, that there is a conflict between good and bad angels. It's, it's interesting to put together so many passages of Scripture. It seems like on this topic in particular, we just get these glimpses of uh, what might be going on and how to understand this topic. As you say, it, it really isn't a focus of Scripture. And yet when we put all the pieces together, we do start to get a bit of a sense for uh, what's going on and how to think about these things, but also need to guard against going too far in our speculation. Uh, that's true. I might just throw one other thing in here, Matt. Um, this richer worldview. Uh, Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 3 that through saving the church, God is making a point to the principalities and powers. So uh, God's project is much bigger than just uh, saving you and me. Well, and that actually leads into my last question, and this is kind of to, to mirror my first question where we went to a specific passage, but I want to go to a different one in First Peter 1, where Peter talks about this salvation that we have, a salvation that the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied about, uh, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Uh, and then it, he goes on to say, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from seven, things into which angels long to look. How should we take that that verse? What is that telling us about angels and even about uh, salvation history itself? I think it tells us in the first instance uh, that angels are not uh, omniscient. Uh, there are things that they don't know, but they long to know. Uh, so that's one thing we, we learn from that. They are creatures, and creatures have limitations. Although they may be much more powerful than us and much more knowledgeable than us, they're not God. So that's one thing we learn. Uh, the second thing is uh, they've been involved in the story of redemption. But how much more about it they would have loved to have known. 
especially when it comes to uh, how God was going to pull off the great rescue. And I think uh, Paul helps us here in 1 Timothy 3, where he says uh, to Timothy, Great is the mystery of godliness, that he was manifest in the flesh. He's referring to the fact that uh, the Son of God became incarnate, and he calls it a mystery, a mysterion, which doesn't mean that uh, it was spooky, but it was something that had not been revealed, but now stands revealed. So that's something that uh, I'm sure the angels would have loved to have known more details about, but they too had to wait until the word became flesh before uh, we could know that great is the mystery of our religion, that he was manifest in the flesh. And I think that's uh, part of the story. Yeah, that kind of changes how you read those uh, opening chapters in the Gospels where we, we read of the angels appearing to the shepherds, declaring glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men. That, that might have been their first glimpse of, of God's final rescue plan, as you say, to come and, and save us from our sins. It's the first great celebration of it that uh, we know of as far as the scriptural witness is concerned. Well, Graham, thank you so much for spending some time today to talk with us about this fascinating topic and and just for the wisdom and helping us to, to navigate how much to focus on this, what we really know from scripture, and then what we need to be careful about and not going too far with. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time. I've really enjoyed our session, Matt. That was Graham Cole on what the Bible really teaches about angels. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Against the Darkness, The Doctrine of Angels, Satan, and Demons, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.